believing that Jesus loves you is vital to them keeping you under control, under their control. And they will do anything, and I mean anything, to perpetuate this thought inside your head. You can build a dysfunctional relationship with Jesus week to week and delude yourself into believing it's real. No one else loves me, but Jesus does. And oh my goodness, how many times did I hear that? Mm -hmm. There are things to love and appreciate about you that need to come from you first if they're ever gonna resonate with other people. Why did God make me with these flaws if he couldn't figure out how to fucking accept them. What proof do you have that Jesus is listening? A voice, a touch, an understanding look? These are the things that tell you if someone is actually listening to you. How many of these has Jesus used to reveal himself to you? Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers and free thinkers there is life after faith and life here is good it's time for a new perspective and a better conversation i'm spider and i'm shell and it's time to get unbound jesus loves me this i know because some old book tells me so how do i know this is real not just something that i feel does jesus love me does jesus love me does jesus love me or is this all for show i'm spider and i'm shell and this week we are kind of looking at the flip side of what we talked about last week last week we discussed the whole odd notion of being in love with Jesus. Well, we're going to turn the tables on that conversation tonight and talk about whether or not Jesus actually loves us. Now, I don't think that I'm giving away any major spoilers (laughs) by saying right up front that the answer is no. But this show being what it is, we have to kind of look at both sides to everything. So last week, we talked about this subject from the angle of how we feel about Jesus. Well, what about how Jesus feels about us? I think it's a valid question, and I think that we're going to come up with a plethora of answers and evidences that show Jesus doesn't love us. And for reasons that are beyond obvious, not just that he doesn't exist, but even if we were to assume the argument that he did exist, there's no possible way that he could. Just based on what we can observe of his nature, both in the Bible and the way that he's portrayed to us from the pulpit, I think it's going to be easy to take this particular subject apart and show just how much Jesus doesn't love us. But before we get into that, we have what I consider to be a really, really interesting Christians behaving badly segment. Mm. This goes beyond behaving badly. And if anyone's been listening to the news in the last week or so, it shouldn't come as any surprise to anyone that we're going to be talking about this subject tonight. But I'm not going to steal your thunder. Go ahead and take it. (laughs) Okay. uh, This is Christians behaving badly, the Duggar edition. Because of course it is. Because of course it is. Um, They've always been a special source of weird fascination for me. 
As the eldest Duggar and his family have been in the news lately, I thought that it would be a good time to talk about the Duggars and how their form of very strict parenting, or non-parenting really, That's more the point. Mm, might affect the children. The Duggars were originally featured on a two-hour documentary entitled 14 Children and Pregnant Again, featuring Jim Bob Duggar, Michelle Duggar, his wife, and their many children. This was such a hit that eventually it became a show, documenting the daily life of the Duggars, and sometimes controversially following them and their children throughout the day. We later find out that none of the money the individual children were paid were actually paid to them. Jill especially had to sue their parents in order to get her money from them, which is... Not surprising. Yeah. Not surprising. Jim Bob was the only one getting paid. Oh, yeah. that's not surprising either. No, that's not surprising either. In later seasons on the show, we find out more about the parenting style of the Duggar family parents, who had nine daughters and ten sons all together. As Mom Michelle kept having babies, she would care for them for a little while and then hand them off to one of her daughters to raise. Was there anything in any of the articles that you read that said it like how old these kids were they when were they were young. handed off define for us a little while how old were these kids when mom just basically passed them off to their older siblings i'm pretty sure it was after they were weaned that early like young because that early she, neither one of them could keep up with her kids well not when you have 19 right you have a baby every year yeah no so the, the girls that the babies would be handed off to were like young teenagers. Right. Like when they need mothering, but they're made to be parents to babies. They would supervise them, make sure they got fed, make sure they got dressed, you know, help them with their homework, all things that parents do. I saw that a lot, though. Yeah. In larger evangelical families. Yeah. I saw that a lot. Right. Because you can't keep up with all these children. True. You just, you can't. But their control over their children nevertheless extends to who they date and who they marry, practicing something called supervised courtship where the couple is almost never alone and is always in a group. Yeah, that was the Baptist thing. Yeah. That was the word of life thing. They talked a lot about that. Yes, never touch, never kiss. They refuse to call it dating. No, it's courtship. Yes. You're basically dating with the purpose of getting married. Yep. And quickly. Yeah. You'd think that with all that supervision and all that control, the kids would all be super duper okay, but surprised they're not. Especially Josh Duggar. I don't hear a lot about the other kids. Just Josh, really. And it's Jill. probably because there's not anywhere near as much to say about them. Yeah. They're probably living their lives of quiet desperation. Josh is. He's he's a he's sick fucked puppy. Up. He is fucked up. He's the oldest child. Mm-hmm. He's there first. He, they spent the most time on him, and he is severely screwed up. So maybe it's not such a bad thing that they're handing these children off to their siblings to be raised. They're probably getting more love. Probably. Yeah. Josh Duggar has had one hell of a checkered past. In 2015, it was revealed that he had molested underage girls while still a minor himself. This is from the Wikipedia article because it was the most succinct timeline of events that happened around that. So the police report indicated that four of the five molestation victims were Duggar's siblings. 
Jim Bob Duggar reported that he had learned in March 2002 that Josh had touched the breasts and genital region of his sisters on multiple occasions while they were sleeping. Jim Bob and Michelle stated they were made aware of the incidents when he confessed and also stated that at the time the girls were unaware that the abuse had occurred. Jim Bob said that Josh was disciplined at home. Okay. Um, Josh committed a crime. That's an actual that's crime. Not, that's not up to the parents to the kid, decide. The kid might be 14 or 15, but it's still a crime. In March 2003, Duggar's parents learned of additional incidents and victims, including the touching of a babysitter, reaching under the dress of a younger sister who was in his lap, and cornering a sister in the laundry room to reach under her clothing. The Duggars had also been told the abuse included a much younger sister who, according to the Duggars, didn't understand that she had been improperly touched. At this time, Duggars' father brought the issue to the elders of their church. To the elders of the church. Yes, that'll be effective. Not to the police, to the elders of the church. I fucking love evangelicals. Ugh, yeah, tell me about it. Jim Bob Duggar informed police that he had enrolled Josh in a program consisting of counseling and physical labor after consulting with his church's leadership. Michelle Duggar stated that he was sent away from home for a period of three months to work for a family friend who is remodeling a building. Later reports suggest that Josh Duggar may have been sent to a facility in Little Rock, Arkansas, owned by the Institute in Basic Life Principles, a Christian ministry and training program founded by Bill Gothard, a Duggar family friend. Oh, that's going to make him so much better. So much better. It has not been established that the Institute and Basic Life Principles Center in Little Rock was open for counseling during the time Josh Duggar was there, or if the building was renovated during this time period and he was assisting with the renovation. Oh, brother. Yeah. So he may not have even been receiving treatment. He may have been fucking painting. Yes. When Josh Duggar returned home in July 2003, his father took him to meet James W. Hutchins, an Arkansas state trooper and family acquaintance. According to Josh and his parents, the meeting was the first time any law enforcement authority was made aware of the sexual abuse. According to Jim Bob, Josh admitted to Hutchins that he had committed molestation and apologized. Speaking via a lawyer, Hutchins disputed that part of the account, saying he was only told of a single act of incestuous molestation and that he would have responded differently if he had known of additional instances and victims. In an interview following this statement, Jim Bob Duggar claimed that Hutchins was told the entire story. Hutchins did not take any official action, but reportedly gave Josh a stern talk. Oh, Jesus, a stern talk. Totally stern. Arkansas law states that law enforcement officers, as mandated reporters, are required to alert the Arkansas Child Abuse Hotline when learning of sexual abuse. And here's the kicker. Hutchins was later arrested and convicted on unrelated charges of child pornography and is serving a 56-year prison sentence. Well, there you go. Now we know why he didn't report it. It's just like I was talking about a while ago when you get people on a jury for like a DUI. Yeah. And there's probably a few of them who have driven drunk and gotten away with it. Maybe even the judge 
has driven drunk and gotten away with it it's difficult at that point to be responsible for putting someone away for the same thing. Yeah. So the simple fact that he said nothing and then this comes out about him, that doesn't surprise me no. at all. No. The most recent charges are for two federal charges of acquiring and possessing child pornography, specifically of children under the age of 12, which is a special circumstance of its own. Oh. And P.S., all of his kids are under the age of 12. Oh, Jesus. This, this it guy. It gets worse. I yeah, mean. Yeah. You know, I, I keep saying this guy as if it's all his fault. No. But, I mean, when I think about where he grew up. Yeah. And in the environment that he was in. And the way that this religion goes so far out of its way to repress any and all things in your yeah. mind that are remotely sexual. Right. It's not an excuse. I'm not making excuses no. for Josh Duggar. But this is what this religion can do to you. Mm-hmm. And plus, I mean, he was allowed to get away with it. He was allowed to get away with it with the touching of his siblings. I mean, it's just irritating. It me. is. But it's how just, many parents do you know that yeah. would just have their kid thrown in jail? Yeah. I mean, that really isn't I mean, an evangelical thing. This is a this is an awful thing. Right. And there's culpability right. with any adult involved in this. Right. But it's tough when you're a parent. Yeah. It's to like, make the decision to blow the whistle on your kid like right. that. Right. But it's like he also hurt your other kids. And mm-hmm. it's like, how do you weigh it? You know, it's like, did you get the girls any type of counseling or? If they had, it would have been Christian counseling. So yeah, what so fucking difference it would it have make? made a difference? But I don't think they even made an effort. This is a quote from the Wikipedia article. Um, the federal grand jury's indictment accuses Duggar of having knowingly received pornographic images of children who are under 12 years old. On April 30th, 2021, Duggar pleaded not guilty to one count each of charges of receiving and possessing child pornography, with his attorneys indicating that he would fight back in the courtroom against the charges. Duggar remained in jail until he was transferred into the custody of a third-party custodian after being granted conditional bail at a bond hearing on May 5th. I love that they think that he needs someone to look out for him yeah yeah well he's also got to have uh electronic monitoring Mm -hmm. but the simple fact that that he needs basically a parent figure that's going to be there to supervise him yes is significant here yeah u.s chief magistrate judge aaron l wiedemann said that if duggar is awarded bail he will have to be in a residence where there's no minor in the home at that time, Duggar's six children were under the age of 11, and his wife Anna was pregnant with a seventh child. As part of the conditions for his bail, Duggar has been permitted to only have contact with his children when his wife is present. He must also wear an ankle monitor, have a probation officer's permission to leave the third-party custodian's home, cannot access the internet, and cannot be inside a residency where firearms are stored. Duggar could receive up to 20 years prison and up to $250,000 fine for each count. Gerald Faulkner, a special agent for Homeland Security Investigations, stated that the images on the computer were in the top five of the worst of the worst that I have ever had to examine. That doesn't surprise me either. No, it doesn't. He's 
basically been allowed this. All of the evidence was gathered in a raid on his used car lot, which is how the Duggars basically make their money. Well, didn't he, like, come running saying something like, did you guys find child porn or something like that? He did come out and say, what, did you guys find child porn? Do you know who's downloading it? Was he being facetious or... Uh, If he is guilty, because right now it's just an accusation. If he is guilty, then he's just feigning ignorance. He had an actual data tracker on his work computer, but he used a password-protected web browsing service. Mm -hmm. So it didn't send the report of downloading child porn. Right. Because it would have. And that right there is pretty suspect. Yeah, it's pretty suspect. I mean, people use, I mean, even Google Chrome has an incognito mode if you don't right. want, if you don't want a record of what you're doing online to be out there in some database somewhere. I mean, these things exist and people use them for all different kinds of reasons. Right. But when you couple that with what's going on here, it just makes it that much more sinister. It makes it sinister to to begin with, but more so when you consider who this person is and what his record is already. Right. It makes it even worse. Yeah, it does. Now I want to talk about Jill Duggar Dillard. Um, That's her married name. Uh, She's probably one of the kids that has the best chance of surviving with a decent self-image. While Josh represents the worst of the clan, Jill, the second oldest daughter, represents one of the best positive outcomes. She was homeschooled like the rest of the kids and can also play piano, violin, and harp. In 2014, she married Derek Dillard, who is currently in law school. As I mentioned above, she had to get a lawyer to sue her father, who received the majority of the money paid from the show, for the money that was due to her for having her childhood recorded for at least seven years of her life. She and her husband have not been to the family home where she grew up for at least two years. I think Jim Bob is really pissed at her. Oh, well, I'm sure that he is. Yeah. But, I mean, this is the kind of dysfunction that not only the religion breeds, but then when you have a family that is that size. Yeah. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how you establish and maintain any kind of healthy family dynamic when there's that many and they're all completely addled by the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it's crazy. Despite the estrangement from her parents, she seems to be happy and actually much more free. She takes birth control, which is a huge no-no. She only has two kids. Good for her. And she wears jeans. She was never permitted to wear jeans and drinks alcohol occasionally. Her husband also seems very supportive and has been vocal on Twitter about the things that happened around the time the molestation news came out and 19 Kids and Counting was canceled by TLC. TLC had rebranded, making a new show called Jill and Jessa Counting On. This is the Twitter conversation Mm -hmm. that uh, Dillard had because some fans were asking questions because I believe that they finally just canceled all the shows. I can't imagine just from a marketing standpoint how you could continue to showcase these people and portray them in any kind of, I was going to say positive light, but any kind of light, positive, negative, neutral, whatever. Yeah. Why would you want them associated with your brand at that point? Yeah, I don't know, but they're 
but determined to keep on making stuff. But Dillard said on Twitter, yes, that's exactly what they called it, a rebranding. Same business structure as 19 Kids and Counting, i.e. one person makes all the decisions for all and one person gets paid, but it would be rebranded to make people think it was different. We pushed back often and we were threatened often. In a second tweet, Dillard continued, if you'll notice, we refused to go to the photo shoot for the intro of the show, Jill and Jessa Counting On. That's why we weren't in the intro, but had to do the shows. Finally, we called their bluff and quit. We'll explain more in a different context. When one commenter suggested the new show was TLC's way of handling Josh Duggar's scandal well, Dillard replied, how do you know how it was handled? It was not handled well. The public was deceived. Their plan worked. And we were told to keep filming and keep our mouths shut. We called their bluff and left. While Jill and her husband are still believers, it seems that both have a chance of seeing actual truth eventually. Well, everyone has a chance of seeing yes, actual truth eventually. they eventually. have a better chance. There, yeah, there seems to be a lot more level-headedness. Yeah going on in this particular relationship dynamic. And I I have to hand it to this guy for getting into a relationship with this girl to begin with. Right. And also just the way that the two of them seem to be evolving right. around each other. It's kind of like the way that we've been it's like all these years. Honestly, yeah. Because I know that when I got married, I felt like, oh, I can be me now. I'm actually away from home i don't have my parents looking at me and then and you figured out that you were a pastor's wife and that all went out the window for a little while longer a little while yeah but none of the girls have any chance of going out and living on their own they're forbidden to go to school you know they they can't go to school they can't go to college they won't get any money for that so none of these girls have a chance the youngest one is still home the youngest daughter and, like, she's desperate to get married and move. Just to get out of there. Just to get assume, out of yeah. there. I can't imagine what it must be like being the only girl still home. Quiet. And maybe. I'm certain it's quiet. Yeah. But, but, I mean, you're dealing with parents that don't really know how to be parents. Yeah. Because, well, I shouldn't say that they don't know how to be parents. But it sounds to me just the way that you described it, that they stopped being parents a while ago right because now they had their kids raising their other kids and now with just one at home it's got to be odd it's yeah. got to be a very very odd dynamic in that house yeah especially with jim bob still ruling the roost yeah true and it's that's pretty scary yeah the entire story of the duggars is pretty scary yeah but when weighed against josh i think you could take all of the others and not find anywhere near the shock value in yeah. anything that they've done i mean we're, we're talking about just stupid evangelical tricks for the most part yeah with the most of them but i mean if i still believed in the concept of evil i would say that josh duggar was definitely in that spectrum right for certain he would be in that spectrum so yeah if you haven't heard the latest on this in the news then you will and if you listen to a lot of atheist podcasts, you're going to hear the story from a bunch of different perspectives, ours just being one of them. I know that I've heard a couple others already. And just a quick shout out to the guys at Scathing Atheist. Um, fantastic 
job on this this week. Oh, yeah. You guys covered this well. And with your signature brand of snark added to it, I think that it was that much better. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that they had to say about this, I think in terms of our show and not wanting to duplicate their content. Yeah. But, oh my goodness, did they have a few quote-worthy moments. Yes, so they did. if you've never listened to The Scathing Atheist, then I recommend that this be the week that you start. Start with the current episode and start working your way back. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> just before we get into our main topic, I just want to let you know that our Patreon is live at patreon.com slash network. And if you have the means to be able to help us out, we would be more than happy to take that money and use it for good purposes to do more with this show, to start producing other shows, delivering more content. If you like what you're hearing here, then we need some help to keep moving things forward and to also expand on what we're doing so if you have the means to help please visit us at patreon.com slash unbound podcast network and if you don't have the means to help us out financially at the moment then you can help us out with your likes your shares your five-star ratings telling other people about the show all of the stuff that makes podcasts grow And once again, we appreciate all of our listeners who keep coming back every single week to hear what we have to say next. And in the spirit of what we have to say next, let's get right into our main topic. So the term Jesus loves you is a staple among Christian catchphrases. It's something that is aggressively asserted but cannot be demonstrated. And yet there are many, many Christians out there who claim that they feel loved by this fictional character whom they've never physically met and have no ironclad proof even exists. Well, I feel him near me is the basic answer that you get. It's the most popular answer when you ask somebody how they know that Jesus is there and that Jesus loves them. Well, I feel him near me then there's one of my quote-unquote favorite hymns you ask me how i know he lives he lives within my heart you ask me how i know he loves me well i feel him in my heart is the same basic sentiment and as far as the whole i feel him near me thing let me tell you something i've been walking down dark streets at night and felt all kinds of things before that didn't mean that any of them were real what is it that you're really feeling That's the question. When you take away all the spiritual bugaboo, what do these feelings about Jesus and his love for you actually mean? Now, just so we're clear, I agree with you that those feelings are real. You feel something when it comes to this relationship that you have with Jesus. You feel something. The question isn't whether or not what you feel is real. It's whether or not those feelings are originating with what you think they are. And they flat out can't. In this instance, they flat out can't. Deception is the number one tool of Christian doctrine. So much of what these people do is based on lies and deceit. It can be very difficult to actually know where those feelings are originating. And I think we did a good job of covering where a lot of it originates last week. Yeah. The, the sheer number of tie-ins between what you go through mentally and emotionally when you fall in love and what they do to spur those things on, I think is very, very significant. And the simple fact of the matter is that they don't want you to think straight about anything, but especially about this one specific thing. Believing that Jesus loves you is vital to them keeping you under control, under their control. And they will do anything, and I mean anything, 
to perpetuate this thought inside your head. Think about this for a minute. I've brought this up before, but it bears repeating. Think about this. There is no, no, no mention of God's love for individuals anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not there. Oh, and and there's no mention of Jesus' love for anyone in the New Testament or any individual, at least not in any way but that nebulous corporate delivery. We see anytime a guest speaker says, we love you from the podium and then exits the platform, that sort of thing. We hear Jesus corporately tell his disciples that he loves them at one point. But coming from the source, that's really all we get. He is seen asking Peter if Peter loves him, but I don't ever see him reciprocating and telling Peter that he loves him back. That's not there. And that, my friends, is significant. It's very significant because this is one of the cornerstones of Christian doctrine, that Jesus loves us. And there is absolutely no evidence anywhere in the New Testament from the source. Keep that in mind. There's plenty of verses that talk about how Jesus loves us. There are plenty of verses where other people assert that Jesus loves us. But find me one where he ever says it to an individual or turns to the camera and says it to the audience. It never, ever, ever happens. The bottom line here is that the love of Jesus was something that the New Testament writers assigned to his nature as a means of making the gospel more personal to individuals. They needed a savior that people could relate to. So when they created this character at the Council of Nicaea, and that's what happened, folks. Sorry, that's what happened. When he was created by these people, he was created to have a lot of relatability to the people of that time. He was given a nature that could be, in certain contexts, described as loving. And yet they never gave him a single line where he said, I love you, to anyone directly, to their face, just one-on-one. -on -one. The only time that we ever really see it happen is in a corporate setting where he's telling everyone in the room that he loves them. And that carries just about as much weight as when the guest speaker at your church says it and waves and walks away. Right. I don't think that there is anything more important to most people than being loved. For many, this takes priority over giving love. And there are many out there who just take it their entire lives and never give it back to anyone. Some are flat out incapable of loving back. And yes, there are some, probably more than we think, who are incapable of receiving love in any real way either. But even those people long to be loved, even if they fail to recognize it when the real thing presents. Oddly enough, this facsimile of love marketed by evangelical Christianity is a thing that even those who can't receive love get behind. Why? Because loving Jesus doesn't carry the same responsibility as loving a person. With no real interaction or accountability, some people find it safe to love and be loved by this thing they've built up in their minds to be Jesus. People can fail to love Jesus and never have to deal with his emotions or any other consequence of a relationship where love doesn't truly live. They can siphon love off of him for the rest of their lives and never once need to stop and consider the impact that being in a relationship with them has on Jesus. They never have to think about how he feels. Right. 
I mean, they're told they should in the way that they live and the way that they do everything. It all ties into I'm doing this because of how I feel about Jesus. But in the structure of what we classically and I guess clinically and scientifically call a loving relationship, there's no back and forth. There can't be because there's only really one person involved. Mm -hmm. This goes right back to the notion of churches being havens for mental illness. You can build a dysfunctional relationship with Jesus week to week and delude yourself into believing it's real. No one else loves me, but Jesus does. And oh my goodness, how many times did I hear that? Mm -hmm. You know, Jesus loved me when I was unlovable. Right. You ever hear that one? Oh yeah. Oh, many times. And if that's where you are right now, this next part of the conversation is for you. Here are just a few things that you can use as a litmus test of whether or not someone loves you. And of course, I'm going to tie all comments into the subject at hand. Here's how you can tell if someone loves you and how Jesus manages to drop the ball on all of them. Now, I looked at a bunch of different sources for this, but most of the things that I came up with, most of these bullet points came from a Psychology Today article that appears to have just been emulated and rewritten many, many times because I saw a lot of lists with a lot of synonyms, but these same basic things explain the same basic way. So I'm giving credit where it's due. This is from Psychology Today. And these are just some of the items that they put on their list. For starters, when someone loves you, it makes you feel safe. And boy, do they tout this one like crazy, mm -hmm. leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to fear? What have I to dread? Leaning on the everlasting arms. Then looking a little bit further into the future than public domain hymns, I can remember songs by Petra like You Are My Rock. I'm never standing alone. You are my rock. And it just gets sappier from there. Yeah. But that song, I mean, it was one that I liked a lot. And it was one that I really clung to when I wasn't feeling it. Yeah. Because, again, music is very, it's very powerful. Music is a very powerful medium. So it was easy for me to get drawn back in by a song like You Are My Rock or Rock of Safety by Mylan and Broken Heart. That was another one that was a big one for me. Many songs from hymns to worship songs to Christian rock drive this concept of safety home to such a degree it just becomes a given in the mind of the believer that this is the way things are. Jesus equals safe, the world equals dangerous. Jesus equals heaven, the world equals hell, and so on and so on. This concept of safety and being safe in the arms of Jesus is huge. The next way that you can tell if someone loves you is that they listen to you. They listen to you. This one is so important and it is completely lacking in any relationship with Jesus. Of course, the solution to this one, any evangelical will tell you, is prayer. You want Jesus to listen to you, then pray. When you pray, you hope that you'll be heard and your prayer is answered. But what evidence is there that you have been or that any answer of any kind has ever been forthcoming when you've prayed? You can cling to coincidences and assign meanings to things, but at the end of the day, what proof do you have that Jesus is listening? How does he respond? A voice, a face, a touch, an understanding look? 
You see, these are the things that tell you if someone is actually listening to you. How many of these has Jesus used to reveal himself to you? How many? Think about it. Just for a few minutes, think about that. Next, if someone loves you, they give you their time as opposed to you being the one that's putting in all the time and effort. Funny, I spent a lot of time in church meeting Jesus where he was, but I didn't feel him that much outside that setting at least not after the NRE wore off. I mean, when I was 13 and I came home from that first week at Word of Life, I was convinced that Jesus was speaking to me constantly. I was convinced that I was hearing him. I was convinced that he walked with me and talked with me along life's narrow way. I believed it wholeheartedly. But after a while, the voices started to diminish and I was just back with myself again. It's just the way that it is. All relationships stabilize and they normalize and you start thinking in slightly more rational terms about the relationship, where it's going, and you start looking at it, hopefully, a little bit more critically. Now, we talked last week about all the safeguards that they have in place to keep you from getting to that point where you are thinking critically about the relationship. But under any normal circumstance, that is what happens, is those initial emotions and energies wear off. And you start questioning things. You stop reading your Bible. That's like one of the biggest ones. You stop reading your Bible. You stop with the constant prayer and taking time out of your day for devotions. Things start to diminish and it all becomes about church. It all becomes about Sunday. Reading the Bible, well, you carry your Bible to church. You're probably not going to read it when you're not in church. And that's not uniformly true, but it is for the majority. The majority of Christians never read their Bible between church services, but most of them do when they first get saved because they want they want to feel like they're spending time with Jesus. They want that connection. They want that time element. But what kind of time is Jesus giving you? How much time does he spend on relationship building with you? Is he ever there just for the purpose of being there and lending you support? No. It's your job to praise and worship him and grovel at his feet and all the effort of spending time, quote unquote, together falls on you. You're the one that has to start praying. You're the one who has to go to church. You're the one that has to make all the effort. It's like being the partner in the relationship that always has to plan everything because the other person is too preoccupied or too indifferent. And I mean, we see that a lot in a lot of human relationships. A lot of relationships, whether they start out that way or not, do become very one-sided after a while. And it's one person putting in all the effort and the other just soaking it in. Well, guess who's who in this scenario? And it's by design. And he doesn't even try to hide it that much. And we'll get into that just a little bit later too. Next, people who love you don't try to change you. And change from the inside out is one of the key things that they talk about in Christianity. If anyone be in Christ, you they are a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. But what about just as I am? Why all of a sudden is just as I am not good enough? Um, it's more like if you want to be one of his, you got to act like one of us. There's Steve Taylor again. And just to be fair, that was a satirical line of his about this very thing, 
where we conform into this image of what a Christian is. And we start decreasing so he can increase and we do all of the things that build him up while we sort of sink into the background. And I know a thing or two about that. I gave up so many parts of myself when I became a Christian. The worst of them, I think, was the music. I listened to no secular music for nearly two years and then felt guilty when it started creeping back in around the time I left for college. A little bit before that, but it was around that time. When I think about the tangent that my life was skewed into when I got this quote-unquote calling into the ministry, I gave up on my plans to become a lawyer. And I'm sorry, I would have been a good one. I would have been a damn good lawyer. I gave up those plans and went to Bible college where even more of me was shamed and disciplined out of the picture. And yet, through all of that, I held fast to the belief that God loved me at least for a few more years and that Jesus was providing me with way more help, support, and comfort than he ever actually did. I was comforting myself, right? just like most of us do under those circumstances. Next, people who love you communicate with you. They communicate with you. And don't believers ever fall into this trap. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. They want so badly to have that two-way connection that they start assigning many of their own thoughts to Jesus. Since Jesus isn't real, he needs to be constructed in their heads. But thinking someone is talking to you without at least hearing an audible voice, and some have claimed to hear this too, or preferably seeing someone's lips move when they speak to you, there is no way to say definitively that anyone actually talked to you. Jesus doesn't communicate with anyone in any way that isn't already chronicled in the pages of the Bible. He can't tell you what church to attend. He can't tell you what movies to avoid. He can't tell you the best time to ask for a raise or a promotion. He can't tell you who to marry. He can't communicate period, because he simply is not real. Next, people who love you express the desire to be a source of help and support for you. There's a bit of this in the Bible. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Mark eleven twenty eight through 30. And then we have Jesus himself saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's John seven thirty seven. Then there's the concept of Jesus leaving the 99 to save the one in Matthew 18. And then give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. That's first Peter five, seven. And Let's not forget these wonderful hymns like what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to the Lord in prayer. Yeah. And then what? Again, mm. that's you know, you don't think about that no. when you're in the thick of it, but you know, I listen to those lines now and it's like and then what? We pray and then what happens? And there's also leaning on the everlasting arms. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace in my Lord so dear, leaning, leaning, safe and secure from all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. Just lean on Jesus. Just let him support you is the message in that hymn. 
And it really does play into our need for that kind of closeness, that kind of sheltering experience when we love or are in love with someone. We want them to be that. We want them to be a source of comfort and a source of support. So, of course, they're going to play into that. These things, however, are nothing but a smokescreen to hide the fact that this is not something you will ever experience. You are on your own when the bills are late. You're on your own when the cancer takes hold. You're on your own when your marriage falls apart. You are on your own when you succumb to addiction. There is no help or support from this thing that's supposed to love you then. What help and support does your pastor direct you toward in those moments? Well, it goes right back to read the Bible and pray, doesn't it? And all the comfort that that provides. Next, people who love you respect your individuality. They don't try to change you. And that brings us back to the whole new creation idea. Someone who loves you accepts you as you are literally as you are there is no need to become a new creation or a new anything or a different anything and there is a huge difference between accepting someone and making the choice to tolerate them as you try to change them i think about the concept of love the sinner hate the sin and how that comes to play in all of that and to me that's one of the most manipulative diabolical things to ever come out of evangelicalism we love you but your behavior your lifestyle your opinions your actions these things kind of make us cringe anyone who doesn't accept you as you are with no expectation that you will change evolve or make adjustments to make them more comfortable to be around you can or will ever truly love you I love you. Your perfect now change is nothing but the title of a musical. It isn't any way to approach or nurture any relationship. Next, when someone loves you, they make you feel good about yourself. Suicide rates among Christians has always been high. Why is that if their savior holds them in such high regard? What does Jesus do to build up people's self-esteem? Not much if the numbers are any indicator. And what I found really interesting here is that pastors in particular have very high rates of suicide, largely over issues where there is spiritual conflict inside their heads. Most depression among clergy centers around crises of faith. They don't seem to feel God close to them. They don't sense his comfort. They don't feel edified in any way. And honestly, that's not the point, is it? Especially not for a pastor. We aren't supposed to exalt ourselves as members of the clergy. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's Matthew 23, 12 from the NIV. That's just it, though, isn't it? Many Christians do everything they can to humble themselves, and few ever feel exalted. This leads to a lot of toxic thoughts about things like self-worth and also their value to their Savior. This is one of those Bible promises that can be easily observed to be fraudulent. There are no provisos or caveats here. The verse says what it says. And if you never see it fulfilled, how on earth can you trust anything it says about God's love, protection, edification, or support? Answer, you can't. And for many who come to that realization, it means the end of anything they believe to be real about their faith. 
This can be devastating for any Christian, but I think it's more so, much more so for pastors. Actually, I know it is. I know it's more so because I was one of them. I never felt, I never felt good about myself as a Christian, but I'm slowly learning how to now for the sake of my family and all the people I love and who love me. But most of all, it's for me and for my own sense of self. I need to figure out ways to love me mm. and to appreciate me and to see all the things that I bring to the table in other loving relationships, in the work that I do, in putting together this podcast, in all of the things that make up my life. I'm getting better at this concept of liking me. I mean, circumstances can chip away at that yeah. at times. I mean, I do still suffer from anxiety. I do still suffer from depression. And these things do nothing to make you feel better about yourself. It's a slow process, but you have to get committed to it. And if you need help getting there, then get the help that you need getting there. But get there, or at least make steps toward getting there. One or two baby steps every single day. There are things to love and appreciate about you that need to come from you first. If they're ever going to resonate with other people, it has to start from within us. It has to start with ourselves and a commitment to liking ourselves more, loving ourselves more, and just staying in that mindset. It's difficult. I know it's very difficult. I have a very hard time with it, just staying in that place where I like me. Mm. But it's incredibly important. It is very important that we try. Oh, here's a big one. Here's a big one. Someone who loves you shows you affection. And not just in the words of a song or in the words of a Bible verse. That song I brought up last week, Arms of Love. Oh, that's a very affectionate kind of song, but that's all it is. It's a song. I see nothing in that song or any other source, including the Bible, about God or Jesus ever showing affection. You know, giving someone a big reassuring bear hug or even a hand on a shoulder. There's none of that. Jesus outsources comfort to the Holy Spirit in John 14, 16. Kind of like handing off your kids to a sibling to be raised. <laughs> and I will pray to the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Jesus doesn't even promise to be there. I mean, he does in other verses more of that wonderful biblical consistency and continuity. Mm. But in this instance, he's basically saying, look, I got a jet. This guy's here. He's going to take over the love shit now. Jesus doesn't even seem to want to stick around to build a relationship with you. I mean, it's right there in black and white. But Spider, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Um, it's talk. Where is he? Right. Where is he? Next, if someone loves you, they want to and hopefully succeed in earning your trust. With all the lies and half-truths in the Bible about God's love, protection, and comfort, where on earth is there even room to build trust? Sure, the believer is tasked with trusting Jesus, but they're supposed to do it sight unseen without ever being respected enough to be given a valid or compelling reason why they should. Faith really is a clever scapegoat. It relieves God of any responsibility to prove or earn anything. We have to earn his love, 
he is deserving of ours simply because of his position. No, 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 no. Don't buy it. Relationships are bi-directional. And what is required of one in a love-based relationship is required of the other, period. Next, someone who loves you puts efforts into things like knowing you. There are so many things Christians are told they need to do to get to know Jesus. Go to church, read your Bible, pray, all of these things. But I don't think I ever heard a single sermon or was taught one spiritual principle that revolved around Jesus knowing me. That's not important because God knows everything and supposedly knows me better than I know myself. Okay, so where's the evidence? Why did Jesus, and I'm thinking on very personal terms right now, why did Jesus never intervene when I was making bad life choices, like becoming a pastor? I never had the attitude for it. I never had the mindset for it. Although for a while, I did a stellar job of cramming the square peg into the round hole, didn't I? Mm. That wasn't me. That was never my personality. If Jesus knew me so well, why did he let me do things that would ultimately derail my life? And I'm so not alone in this regard. So many people I know, people who wanted to be doctors, lawyers, engineers. Yeah, I'm thinking you're listening. Architects, you name it, all roped into dropping everything and squandering their intellects in Bible college and spending their entire lives struggling for the sake of this fairy tale called Christianity. People, relationships go two ways, period. This thing they call a relationship with Jesus simply does not. He puts in zero effort and expects you to live up to his image of you. At least that's the messaging I always got. He doesn't have to work on the relationship. He's perfect. Now it's your turn to strive for that level of perfection. And even then you're told that you'll never be worthy. You call that love? I mean, you can if you want, but that ain't it. That is not it. Next, people who love you don't deal with you in absolutes. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. <clears throat> That's a very absolute statement there, Obi-Wan. Mm. Um, in healthy relationships, just a little levity to ease the tension there, but in healthy relationships, there's no, if you loved me, you would blank. Because with all due respect, true love proves itself. It proves itself in things that you can see, things that you can observe, actions on both sides of the table it proves itself by all of those things true love involves respecting the other person and dealing with their idiosyncrasies dealing with all the things that you may not like that much but that you love anyway because they are part of that person you don't have to like it to love it that's the crazy part about love you don't have to like everything about another person, but you love them wholly and completely because that is who they are. All of their parts intact, all of their baggage intact, that's who they are. And that is what we should be choosing to love. Not necessarily like, but certainly love. True love just flat out doesn't try to force change. But in order to experience Christ's love, there are so many things that we're told that we need to do. We must repent there's an absolute for you. We must make a public confession. There's another one. 
How many of us got coerced into walking down to that altar that night? Because mm-hmm. if we confess Jesus before men, he'll confess us before his father. But if we deny him before men, he'll deny us before his father. That's pretty damn absolute. We must get baptized. And this is an evangelical thing across the board. We're told that salvation is enough, but then there are all these other requirements and they are absolute requirements. We must strive not to sin. And when we do, we must repent again. Rinse, repeat, and call it love. Again, very one-sided. There's only one person here trying to build a relationship. I mean, their own book negates the way that Jesus deals with this. His brand of love in no way follows the model in 1 Corinthians 13, not even remotely. In that chapter, it says that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, again from the NIV. But let's look at some of the things that we're told love is and how God isn't any of these things. And let's keep in mind that God and Jesus are one and the same. When you see me, you see the Father, for I and the Father are one. That came right from his own lips. So when we're talking about envy and pride, well, I read in Exodus 25 that God is a jealous God and wants no other gods before him. As far as being boastful, how about I am the way, the truth, and the life? I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. Nothing boastful about any of that, is there? Love isn't self-seeking? Well, how about in John 21 when Jesus keeps chiding Peter over whether or not he loves him? Do you love me? Well, do you? Do you? Three times he's asked. And At no point in time does Jesus ever reciprocate and say, well, you know what, buddy? I love you too. It never happens. You want to talk about anger? Well, let's look at the Hebrew Yahweh of the Old Testament and his two million plus murders. Okay. Pick your genocide people and, you know, call it love. Um, No record of wrongs? Well, I guess unless you reject the gospel, And then you get to go through this lovely white throne judgment where every sin you've ever committed is thrown back in your face. So there's a loving God for you who keeps no record of wrongs. And there's more there. I mean, I could really dig into first Corinthians 13 and I've thought on a couple of occasions about doing an entire episode on that chapter because there's just so much skewed messaging in it. It's good on, on the surface. Everything it has to say is really good. But there are so many ways where that messaging is negated in other parts of the Bible that it's worth looking at in depth. But I'm going to stop there with the exposition just for now. I don't understand why there are boundaries to how God is going to love me, how much he's going to love me, and what my responsibility is here. Because it always felt to me, and it was, it didn't just feel to me, it always was the case that I was putting in way more work. I was putting way more into the relationship than Jesus was ever going to. When someone loves you, they want to meet your needs. Jesus, I'm sorry, 
wants no such thing. He wants your worship and he wants your devotion, but he isn't at all concerned about your needs. It's funny to me how he promised his believers an abundant life in John 10.10 and yet never supplied any kind of roadmap for how to achieve it. I see him telling people all the things that they'll be able to do to bring Jesus to more people to worship him. That starts around Matthew 4.19. There's Matthew 28.19 and every other instance of the Great Commission that you can add to that. But I see nothing in scripture about how being a follower of Christ has any measurable personal benefit to the individual. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. When someone loves you, they want to protect you. And when I read my Bible, I see a God who's out to get me if I don't play by his rules. The atonement was supposed to be that protection, and yet I have to ask for it or I don't get the benefit of it. It's not given to me as a matter of cause because my protector loves me. The protection Christ provides is the same as the protection the mob provides. It comes at a price, and paying that price is mandatory. That's a nice soul you got there. It would be a shame if something bad were to happen to it. Next, when someone loves you, they give you no reason to doubt their feelings. And I mean, that might be one of those absolute kind of statements that we don't like very much around here. So let me see if I can soften that up just a little bit. It's not really that they don't give you any reason to doubt their feelings. It's that if those doubts creep in, they do things to reassure and to demonstrate more than reassure, to demonstrate that their feelings for you are solid. That's in human relationships. That's basically the way that it works. I'll say it again. No loving parent deals with his or her children the way that the God of the Bible deals with his. As long as things like disease and hunger exist in the world, I will always have my doubts about whether or not God loves anyone. Um, and honestly, it's not really even a matter of doubt. It's demonstrable that God loves no one. And between the Old Testament and the New, we are given scores of reasons to doubt whether or not God loves us. It's clear that the Old Testament Yahweh never loved anyone, and the very conditional nature of Christ's salvation casts even more doubt. If Jesus wants to save me, why doesn't he just save me? Why must I grovel? Why must I confess him before men? Why must I return to the altar again and again and again to be re-reconciled to him again and again? Why did God make me with these flaws if he couldn't figure out how to fucking accept them? Next, if someone loves you, they want what's best for you. And this is the most important part of this. Plain and simple, the God of the Bible only wants what's best for himself. Ditto his son in the New Testament. Worship me and find more people who will. That's God's love in a nutshell. We all deserve better than that. I do, you do, all of us do. There is no reason any of us should be settling for what this religion and its so-called savior figure has to offer. One of the biggest obstacles that I've faced in my life is feeling unloved. Yes, even in a good marriage, even when things in my life are going well, I still feel that void sometimes, that void that I was taught to feel just before I got saved. People, there is no God-shaped hole in all of us, although I did like Bruce Almighty. That was a good movie. But there is no such thing as a God-shaped hole or God-shaped void. It doesn't exist. 
These are things that we construct in our heads that represent the things in our life that feel unfulfilled or empty. But there is no external thing that can fill that void. It's up to us to figure out ways to fill it. That whole mindset is the product of the kind of stinking thinking that evangelicals cram into our heads to keep us in a headspace that relies on imaginary friends to complete our identity. And when I think about this whole concept of being unloved, I keep going back to the movie Arthur. Mm. One of the later conversations between Arthur and Hobson, and I love how this pans out, where he's wearing a helmet, he's wearing gloves or something along those lines, and Hobson just asks him to take these things off. And Arthur has no idea why. At this moment in time, he's being asked to take off his helmet and gloves. He was in the race car. That's what it was. Yeah. And he's standing there and he's just in this real self-loathing place and Hobson grabs one of his gloves and slaps him across the face with it and says you spoiled little bastard you're a man who has everything haven't you but that's not enough you feel unloved Arthur welcome to the world everyone is unloved and there's a lot of truth to that but I love how after he's done chastising him he also says oh and incidentally I love you I think about that a lot when I get into that mindset and I hear Hobson saying, you spoiled little bastard. It's like, you know what? Maybe that's a little bit more self-loathing than I need to be heaping on myself, but it definitely does kind of ring true. You kind of have to slap yourself back into reality once in a while and start inventorying what you actually have. And if you really can't come up with another person, if you really can't come up with another group of people that you can say, definitively loves you. I'll say it again. It starts with ourselves. It starts with reaching a place where we love and appreciate ourselves, see the good that comes out of the thoughts that we think, the things that we do, the way that we live our lives, especially if we're out of this thing and living life on our terms now. That's major. That right there is reason for you to pat yourself on the back once in a while and like yourself just a little bit more. Not everyone is going to love us, and they're not meant to. It's that small group of people who love us at every point on the spectrum, from platonic to familial to erotic, that we need to focus on and find ourselves within. Not that you're finding yourself in another person, but you're finding your worth in the way that these people treat you and deal with you and express how they feel about you to you. These things are important for us to pick up on and not do the whole self-loathing thing. We're now, we're not allowing these things to penetrate. We're not allowing that love to get to us because that's a thing that can happen, especially when you're in a place where you feel unlovable. And I've been in many, many places in my life where I felt unlovable and wished that I just liked myself or understood myself just a little bit more. And you know what? I'm probably going to go to my grave not understanding certain things about me, and that's okay. But I think that I can say with reasonable certainty that I'll be able to go to my grave with at least enough self-esteem to say that I loved myself enough to justify other people loving me back. And I think that that's the most that any of us can really hope for, is to be able to come to that realization when it matters the most and say, you know what, I did a pretty good job of liking me, loving me, 
and loving the people around me. Because, you know, I think that if you spend any amount of time in evangelical faith, I think those feelings of self-loathing become exponentially worse. Your brain has been taught some really awful lessons about what love is and how it is modeled by your so-called savior. People, hear me here. Just hear me here. It doesn't matter what some Bronze Age book has to say. I asked the question last week, what has Jesus done for you lately? Well, this week, I want to expand on the question and ask you this. How does it feel to be loved by Jesus? Do you feel better about yourself as a person? Do you have a more developed sense of self since you got saved? Are your emotional needs being met in this relationship? Do you feel sheltered and protected? Are you happier now than before you decided to follow Jesus? Honestly, if you're at this point in the episode and you haven't bailed, I think we both know the answers to those questions, don't we? If you're still in this thing, what are you getting out of it? More to the point, what are you getting out of it from him? You get plenty in the way of social interaction and acceptance, at least some of the time, but that's what you get from other people. What do you get from him? If you're out, it's probably because you've discovered that so many of the things on that list were missing from the equation. Don't waste one more minute of your life wondering if getting out was right. It was. And you have strength beyond your own comprehension for making that decision and following through on it. You saw through the facade. You know what love is and you knew that it wasn't ever going to be found in a religion that's centered on the will of a seething narcissist and megalomaniac or his slightly more docile, but still pretty unsavory, self-absorbed progeny. Love is too important a thing to be left in the hands of imaginary deities who could never deliver it or sustain it in your life. Love is a two-way proposition. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, it's good advice. Love your spouse, partner, or partners the way you want to be loved and understand that you have the right to be loved back. We all feel unloved at times, but if we step back once in a while and look at our lives and the people in it, chances are we can find it somewhere. And if we don't, it's our responsibility to go out and find it, being committed to giving as much as we take and recognizing that we will only ever feel loved to the extent that we're willing to love in return. If all of that makes sense to you, then you understand this thing called love way better than any religion will ever be able to explain it to you. And that means you don't need religion to feel or practice it. All you need is a desire to give as well as receive and a mind that understands what that really means. Once you get there, it's a pretty good bet that you're at least on your way to getting and staying unbound. hope you enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound. Unbound.